But if you turn to uh, Mark chapter 10, 13 to 31, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was sitting out, setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but, with, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began saying to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I hope you'll keep your Bibles open with me there to Mark chapter 10. It's uh, really two episodes that we're going to look at together, a nice chunk of scripture, perhaps larger than we've looked at recently, but uh, an incredible combination of episodes for us to learn from this morning. One of the things I'm aware of uh, as we gather in this room this morning is it's the first Sunday of the month. And that means that we have many of the children who are typically in Cross Point Kids here in this room with us. And what a great passage to spend our time with together, right? Um, we have a, a sermon illustration sitting in this room with us that God himself has used for us to give attention to. So kids, thanks for being here. I'm glad you're here. And uh, I hope that you'll listen with us, teach us. Ask some questions of the people that are sitting around you. If you uh, are wondering what in the world we're talking about or have something you'd like to share, please participate with us in the room. This morning we read a passage that contains two seemingly disconnected uh, episodes in the life of Jesus. One is concerning that group of children, right? And then the second one is concerning a rich young man. 
In both instances, Jesus shows a, a deeply personal love for the people who are involved in those episodes. When the first encounter, we read of Jesus' intimate fellowship with children. He literally, it says he takes them and he holds them, right? Pretty incredible encounter. But in the second encounter, we have a young man who walks away sorrowful. What a contrast to the different ends of that, those two episodes. In the midst of that contrast, that I think that Jesus is teaching us something particular. And Mark is recording these two episodes back to back, that in these two episodes we can learn a singular reality. That we would learn the one to whom the Lord receives into the kingdom is the one who enters into that kingdom by faith alone. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word and we can give attention to, to the words of the Son, Jesus Christ. We can hear from our God. You have come to us and you've given us the access to the kingdom and understanding of the way of our God and your kingdom reign. And you have called us to leave behind all other things but a a dependent following after you. Thank you, God. I pray that you would work this in the midst of the congregation this morning, that you would give us discernment for the ways that this needs to press into each one of our souls and that your spirit would meet us in that place, that your word would go out and be met with your spirit's work, that we would be changed, Lord. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin our passage with this simple statement here at verse 13. They were bringing children to him, that is Jesus, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. They brought their children. It's a simple scene. This isn't some special religious ceremony. There's no sort of uh, correspondence to some practice in, in Judaism in which people would line up and, and go through a special touch and a special word that was prayed. This is just a simple gathering of people who probably nearly spontaneously were bringing their children to this rabbi that was visiting their area to seek his blessing, to seek his prayer. The, the very simple request from a group of parents looking for Jesus to bless their kids. And yet in the middle of that simple request, what would seem to be a humble request, the disciples rebuked the parents for bringing the children. It would appear that the disciples were concerned. What were they concerned about? Well, they were concerned for his time and attention, right? I mean, Jesus has important things to do today. I even wonder if part of their issue is that they were jealous for his time and attention. And there are important things that they need to talk about on this day. All these lofty things that they've been learning as they've been following in the way of Jesus. Jesus needs to exercise a demon Jesus needs to heal the sick. He needs to teach the learners, not deal with these children on that day. The children and the parents were what you might call an unnecessary distraction in this particular episode. Now, we've covered this in recent passages, but one of the things that was true in this cultural moment was that children had a very low standing in society. 
One of the things we need to be careful of is not to read our current cultural practices and understandings into the culture that we're reading about right here. All right? It's simply a reality that children, in the sort of common understanding of what just about everybody in the room, even the parents would sort of understand this, they would be the last to be brought to Jesus. The least important to visit a popular rabbi who is visiting the region. The disciples were simply acting in the order of the culture of the day. Now, the kids who are listening in, stay with me for just a moment. Jesus is about to correct a misshapen culture. Jesus has done this a number of times. He's done this with women. He's done this with the sick. He's done this with the marginalized. In numerous cases in Mark, he upends the societal norms and it begins to re- reveal the reality of the culture of the kingdom. And he does that right here in our passage today. And I think there are two lessons at least for us right here in this passage. The first is this. Jesus has an important lesson for the minister of the gospel. And by that, I mean the disciples of Jesus Christ. Those who are sent to proclaim good news. If the children have souls, if the children are fully human, if they are known by God, and if they will give an account before him, then children are not a distraction from ministry. They're the very center of it. To put it another way, Jesus treats the children as fully human. There's really two things that happen in the passage, two things that we're confronted with. We're confronted with those who would bar access to Jesus, and we're being confronted with the call not to bar access, but to welcome access to Jesus. That's the first thing. And then second, we ourselves are called to enter into access to Jesus. Does that make sense? So there's sort of a caution for us, and that's where we begin, that we would not bar access to Jesus by treating any human being as something less than someone with a soul who give account to their God. But at the same time, I think there's a lesson for us in our cultural moment that children are not the least. Children are doted over, all right? Children are elevated and even in places sort of idolized. We can't make a mistake in this lesson. Yes, he makes the point that all must receive the kingdom of God like a child. But his purpose is not to elevate children to some sort of special position in the kingdom, all right? So let's not swing the pendulum to some side that Jesus is not saying. As we'll see, he's making a point about everyone who comes to Jesus, men and women, young And old, all who come to Jesus must come in the same condition of need and trust for which a child serves as an excellent illustration. Are not children, by definition, in a state of need and trust? This is the state in which all human souls must enter the kingdom of God, There is no other means of entrance than a position of need and trust. Look at verse 
15 with me. This is where he says it. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. We should hear this first thing. We must look children in the eyes and we should intercede for the human soul that we see there. We should invest in the human soul that we see there. We should invite each of these young souls to know Jesus and to enter his kingdom by faith alone. By faith alone. The same means of entrance of anyone who would come. I'd like to offer a simple encouragement here. It's a realization that I've been uh, really has been a life-giving gift to me over the course of a number of years now after preaching on a Sunday morning, okay? I'm exhausted. I'm tired. Now, some of you are like, yeah, you preach so long. We're exhausted too, all right? Uh, it, it's, it's an exhausting labor to, to preach on a, a Sunday morning. And honestly, when, when I'm done preaching, I'm a bit vulnerable, all right? kind of stood up and said a lot of the words. And the Bible says a lot of things about saying a lot of words, and not very many of them are are good things. All right? So I'm a bit vulnerable in that moment. It's an odd internal experience and spiritual wrestling match that happens in preaching. And one of the things that I began to do a number of years ago, really by accident mostly, after the sermon, I would walk down the hallway, whether it be at Manatee Elementary School or here, and I would visit the CP Kids room. And my purpose in doing that at first was to let them know that in just a few moments, you get to rejoin your families and join in the celebration service and sing the last two songs with us and re- receive the benediction. But honestly, this has become a restful gift to me because when I talk to a child, I have the distinct impression that they look at me as simply another human. That when I talk to a kid, the only evaluation that goes through their mind is not mom, not dad. (laughs) You know what I mean? And other than that, another human. And that's a gift. There's no careful calculation of my value in society. Do you see what I mean? There's no sense that I need to exercise some performance, that I need to occupy some position. Just a human. Just a human who's struggling to get to know their name. And when I ask them their name, they never look at me funny. They just tell me. And we talk together. It's such a simple human interaction. If you tell a child hello, the response is hello. And you get the impression that that's all that they mean by it. Such a simple human interaction. I would encourage you, everyone here, don't overlook children. They are a gift they will teach you more of how to be human. If you look them in the eyes and see a genuine human being with a mind and with a soul, I've found a simplicity in their interaction with children that there are some of the most meaningful human interactions that I have in a week down the hall for about five minutes before being prepared to come back in this room with all the adults. When I read this encounter in Mark, I can't help but think that Jesus is experiencing the same thing. I think about all the interactions that he has during the course of his ministry and during the course of any one particular day. Now, he called a group of people to him. They were his disciples. They were mature men who were following after the way of Jesus. 
But more often than not, it's around them that we find Jesus exasperated. He is in our passage today. He's very clear about his exasperation. In fact, it says in verse 14, he was indignant with them. Almost like, will you please get out of my way and just give me a little bit of simple human interaction. There's a sweetness and a life-giving exchange and a model for human interaction. What if we saw one another and interacted with one another first and foremost as simply human, body, mind, and soul? I think we could sit in that for a minute. Why does the Lord receive these children? Because they're human. They're created in his own image. To love him, to know him, and to enter into his kingdom by grace through faith. Friends, that is the baseline definition of all of our human interactions. All of them. Let us recover what it is to encounter humans again. I think there's at least one more lesson for us here. How often in the busyness of ministry do we allow busy work to distract us from the heart of the mission? I think that's what the disciples had going on here. Are we not commissioned to the ministry of what? Reconciliation. To the ministry of the making of disciples. I'm struck by this when people tell me that they didn't want to call me or bother the pastor because they know that I'm busy. And my question is, what did you think I was busy with? If you thought I was was so busy that I can't talk with you, you have a bad pastor. You have a bad brother in Christ. You and I together are the, the center of the ministry that we are in together. I often think to myself, what busyness must a pastor be involved with that brothers and sisters in Christ are a distraction from the labor? Each one of us should ask ourselves the same question. What did the disciples think was so important on that day that Jesus should be barred from interaction with human souls? What do we think we're so busy with? I think that is at the heart of why Jesus says, why Mark tells us that Jesus was indignant. One commentator notes that Mark presents the disciples here as, quote, obstructionists who stand in the way of the generous intentions of Jesus. I want to say it again, because when I read that, I had to stop. The disciples become obstructionists who stand in the way of the generous intentions of Jesus. That is a serious accusation. You remember the millstone around their neck sort of thing? Back in Mark chapter 9, verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to, a great millstone were hung around his neck and they were thrown into the sea. Like that kind of indignant. That's what Jesus is on this day. But in contrast, just a few verses before in Mark chapter 9, Jesus says this, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. You see, by preventing the children, the disciples are standing in the way of the Lord's own expression of grace. Friends, if there is a place that you want to stand, it's not in the way 
obstructing the persistent flow of God's grace. Don't stand there. As we noted when we considered this same passage just a few weeks ago, when the word child is used here in Mark chapter 9, he's actually referring to the children of the kingdom, all who belong to the Father, all who trust in his name. When we receive one another, we are the closest we're going to get to receiving the Lord himself this side of eternity. And so we ought to go with the flow of grace. Move along what I call draft behind the Holy Spirit of God and let, us, let him lead us into these human interactions with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the passage ends, this little section ends this way. Verse 16, he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. You can't get much more explicit than that. He took them in his arms. There's a physicality to what's happening in this passage again. Here's what Jesus does. He fulfills his own instruction and he receives them in his name. And we're being called to follow after Jesus in this. Touch, reception, sight to see what stands before us, the very image of God. Here again, I'm so impressed. Mark, have you not? In our many weeks together, week 35 we're in this week. In our many weeks together in the Gospel of Mark, the physicality, the, the emotional tangibility and humanity of the God-man, Jesus Christ, taking children to himself. The point of this passage is Jesus' instruction to receive the children let me ask this question before we move to the second episode. Does what we do with children, and particularly in ministry, in our disciple-making labor, does it matter? Is it really worth it? Is it worth it to pray for a kid? Is it worth it to share and teach a child the gospel, to bless them, to enter into friendship with them? Is it worth it to try to enter into friendship with a child, particularly on a Sunday morning gathering. Are they really listening, we might say? Let me go first at prayer. I think it's one of the most pressing questions for us. Honestly, I don't know how much kids are really listening. And some of the kids are right now are like, I'm listening very well. Thank you very much. I know. I know you are. My guess is you're actually listening more intently than some of the older people who are sitting near you. And you're probably hearing it a bit better. I know. But when it comes to prayer, whether or not a child is listening, I am absolutely confident the Lord is. Pray. Of all of our behaviors, in a gathering on a Sunday morning, whether it's in here or down the hallway, pray. You know, one of the greatest ministries that I have seen, I have seen the nursery workers, and they're not sitting there walking through some catechism with the children. You know what I mean? They don't even understand English yet. Right? And I've watched them. I've, I've walked down there. Even though we don't specifically go and get the nursery, I still step in, say hello. And I, can, I, can, I know those people are in that nursery who have been praying for the kids. And I think that is more valuable than all the teaching that happens in this room or down the hall. Because I know that the one to whom the prayer is oriented is listening. 
he hears and he works there. We bless the children in the name of the Lord. And he receives them and he blesses them. I, as a parent myself, I know what it is to labor over a child and, and wonder, is it working? It's not. Not one of us are good enough. We're going to read it in just a few moments. No one is good but God. What we're doing isn't working. So we beg. It's a call to prayer. God, work. God, work. And friends, if you're not a parent here, even if you're one of the kids here, can you join the parents in the room in this difficult, not working labor that we're in? Will you pray for the children? I think that there's at least a second instruction for us that what it means to enter the kingdom like a child. None of these children strutted their way into the room on that day. They were brought by others, and then they were brought up into Jesus' arm by his own accord. It's what Kent Hughes calls helpless dependence. This is the way of faith. It's the way of parents raising children by faith is helpless dependence upon the Lord. And it's the only means of any of our entrance into the kingdom. Helpless dependence upon the Lord. It's to admit that none of our labors are sufficient to effect anything of genuine worth. But the Lord is able, and of us, his own accord, he takes us up in his arms. I think Mark is leading us to this conclusion. He's done it over and over again in recent weeks. The Lord is able, and the Lord is good. Surely a good and confident life is one that's lived trusting in the Lord and resting in the Lord. Now what we have before us in the next episode is quite a contrast. What must I do to inherit eternal life is the question that's brought to Jesus in the next section. Where the previous episode had to do with those that even the disciples presumed should not be admitted to Jesus. In this episode, we have a man who surely would be at the front of the line. And when he enters the presence of Jesus, he would be given a privileged seat, right? Now we're told in verse 17, as he was setting out on his journey, Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him. This is, a, this is a man who is approaching Jesus in a particular humility. So we shouldn't heap it on him, but surely everyone around him is watching this happen and saying, surely that man, unlike the children, that guy gets a privileged seat. Now, what's interesting is Mark doesn't initially mention that this is either a young man or a ruler. Matthew and Luke mention that, but our passage says that a man. He's just simply... A man. It's not until the end of the story that we discover he's a rich man. What we get in our passage is the same thing that we got in the interaction of Jesus with the children. We get a simple human interaction. And the man comes up to Jesus and he calls him good teacher. Not only did he run up to Jesus, not only did he kneel down before Jesus, but he honors Jesus with the words good teacher. And Jesus' response is, why do you call me good? 
Now, the man could have opened up his systematic theology and walked through all of the reasons why the God-man taking on flesh has walked in perfection. But that's not on the radar here. He was simply honoring the rabbi who was there. It seems wise and good and perhaps even a humble thing to do on this occasion. What Jesus does is he invites the man to reevaluate his sort of framing of what goodness is. Is goodness simply a measure of external behaviors? Is goodness a factor of one standing in society? Young man, kneeling there, calling me good. You see, at this point, Jesus has gathered quite a following, and he had a certain level of popularity. So it would be appropriate to call Jesus good sir, to call him a good man, a good rabbi, a good teacher. It's an honest valuable question to ask the man, why do you call me good? How do you calculate that estimation? Does the man consider Jesus to be good by the same standard by which he would esteem himself good? Because Jesus has shown himself to be important, to be of note in society. Is this the evaluation that brings you to this conclusion? Now, the man comes around to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, as you know the commandments. Then he lists them there. Again, Jesus is the second time inviting the man to an honest reevaluation of what is good. What is the standard and measure of goodness, of, of holiness, of righteousness? Consider the commandments in the list. What does he say? He, what Jesus lists when he asks him to consider the commandments are the commandments that are easy to keep. Come on. You can do them. You know whether or not you've done them. Clearly, each moment of each hour of each day, you know whether or not you've killed someone or stolen. Like, yes, another day down. Didn't kill anybody. It was close at moments. Didn't steal anything. Wanted to. But I made it. Now, the man says, still good. All of these I've kept. I don't think he's lying. I think he's kept the behaviors of the law. Jesus accepts the man's answer as an honest assessment. He doesn't argue with him. The man is stuck on a strict construction of behaviors which the commandments prohibit. He fails to discern the fuller context that Jesus has spoken about elsewhere. Think of like the Sermon on the Mount, the man's behavior, according to the simple behaviors that the commandments require, is impeccable. But what of his faith in the way of the kingdom? The passage tells us that Jesus looked at the man. In verse 21, he looked at him. Don't pass it over loved him. Jesus loved the man. And he said something. And when Jesus speaks, the father says, listen to him. So we will. He loved the man. It's such a profound little statement. Mark interjects the reality into this tragic exchange. But notice what true love does according to Jesus' own words. He does not leave the man in idolatrous failure to trust in him. He doesn't abandon the man to his own inner inclinations. 
or trust in his own wealth or position in society. True love does not affirm a person's sense of their own inner righteousness. Jesus doesn't do it here, but he loves the man. And in honest love and compassion, he makes a clear call to faith in the Lord alone. He says this in verse 21, you lack one thing. Now, now pay attention. Don't just say, he told him to get rid of everything. No, he says, uh, really, two things with two qualifications. He says, sell all you have, then give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. And then, as the second main instruction, come follow me, he says to the man whom he loved. Let's look at the two parts of Jesus' interaction. Sell all you have. Jesus discerns something about the man. Note the final commandment, the tenth commandment. Jesus didn't mention that in his first list. He talks about adultery. He talks about murder. He talks about stealing. He talks about honoring your parents. But do not covet is the final commandment. Jesus' words are a challenge to the man's estimation of his own goodness. It's a challenge that goes to an inner self-sufficiency. It confronts social norms that esteemed a person because of his wealth and because of his position in the society. And when Jesus presses against the man's own self-inner evaluation, and he presses against society's evaluation of the man, the man becomes disheartened. He went away sorrowful, the passage says, because he had great possessions. Jesus told the man to give what he had to the poor. But notice what he does. He immediately says this. He holds out the treasure of heaven. Give to the poor. Yeah, that's my first instruction for you. And the second part of that instruction is take hold of the fullness of the inheritance that is in the heavenly places for all of the redeemed. Take hold of the treasures of heaven, he tells the man. Jesus, in clarity about his instruction, is not taking anything away from the man. He's calling the man to make an exchange. Listen, this is the most important thing about the exchange. He's calling the man to make an exchange that demands trust in the Lord. You see, right now, the man knows he's rich. But Jesus is saying, you follow after me, and I'll show you what it looks like to be rich. You just have to trust me. You have to leave behind your self-sufficiency and position in the society. Trust me. This is the way of faith. It's to give over the things of the world, even our own lives, to take hold of the things of heaven, even eternal life. Mark chapter 8, Jesus says this, and right after he proclaims the gospel of his suffering, his rejection, his death, and his resurrection, he begins to unpack what that means in the life of the disciple. He says this, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever saves his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You'd have to ask this rich young man who walks away sorrowful. The man clearly covets. He chooses to cling to his worldly possessions and his stature in the society. And he walks away with his wealth and fails to take hold of eternal life. 
What a tragic failure of exchange. The second part of Jesus' command is come follow me. This man was called to become a part of the itinerant band of Jesus' disciples. And Peter, in, in verse 28, he's quick to compare the man's leaving behind of everything, with Peter's own leaving behind of everything, with this man's failure. This man would have been the 13th disciple. But he walks away. He walks away. Jesus loves the man. And the man leaves sorrowful. It's one of the most tragic episodes recorded for us in all of the Gospels. Friends, we can keep all the external behaviors of a righteous man. Some of us are good at it. Some of us have carried around the weight of that achievement for a long time. And you've also discovered that not only is there a weight of that achievement in a performance, You've also discovered the weight of that achievement in pretending. You know how hard it is to keep up that appearance. But the Lord, he discerns our hearts. And he calls us to a way that does not have that weight, a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light, that casts off all of that performance, that casts off all of that pretending, all of that performing, and rests in Christ and all that we could have in him a satisfaction to cling in helpless dependence upon the abundant, majestic, heavenly riches of the mercy of our God. He loves our soul, and he would keep us close to him if we cling to him by faith alone. Now, the passage isn't over. I kind of wish it was, right? Because we see what Jesus goes at. He goes pretty hard. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. You see, in verse 24, after Jesus tells us how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God with wealth, the disciples, it says, were amazed at his words. Wait a minute. You mean for the privileged in society, it's hard to enter the, the kingdom? But Jesus is just getting started. He presses the point even harder. Look at verse 25. It's easier for a camel to enter through an eye of a needle than for a rich man, a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? The abundant possessions of the rich young ruler are not an aid or a benefit or something that sets him up as ready to be more fully blessed, and therefore the rich young man would have been basically halfway into the kingdom. But what Jesus says is his wealth is a danger, a pitfall, something to be overcome or entirely cast off. Now, if Jesus is doubling down, the disciples do as well. Look at verse 26. In the first place, they were amazed. In 26, they were exceedingly astonished. Then who can be saved? If the rich man, if the privileged in the society can't be saved, who's basically halfway to the inheritance of heaven already because he's received half of it here, how in the world can anybody be saved? You see, the disciples had bought into a worldly valuation of persons 
First, the children are not worthy, and then Jesus says they're the most welcome. And then this rich man is, must be welcome, and Jesus says that's impossible. It's not possible. And he goes away sad. And then Jesus says this, and I think it's the most profound sentence in the whole thing. In verse 27, with man it is impossible. Not highly unlikely. Not very doubtful. Highly rare. Impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. Then Peter, of course, begins to press his possibility, all the things that he has done to merit Jesus' favor in ignorance of Jesus just saying, nope, for you too, Peter. Like, it's, it's actually impossible, Peter. The calculation is short and simple. The Lord saves, not status, not wealth, nothing apart from grace, not self-righteousness, the Lord alone. He goes on in verse 29. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospels. I love that phrase, for my sake and for the gospels. I want to call you this morning to something specific. Memorize that. We follow after Christ for his sake and for the gospel. We need to know what both of these are. We need to memorize it. We need to use that phrase more often. Memorize it, understand it, use it. We follow after Jesus and the good word that he proclaims. We follow after Jesus and the way that he holds out for us, that we enter into by faith. We hope in the gospel because Jesus, it's Jesus' own provision of grace. Our hope is in the news of Jesus, that he's given his life in the place of sinners by a sacrificial death on the cross. We follow after Jesus and we make much of his good news. To enter the kingdom is to turn back all hope of things in this world and to turn to Christ and his gospel in helpless dependence. And then the perfect summary comes along. In verse 31, he speaks of the first, our last, and the last, our first. Perfect summary. Later on, in just a few weeks, we'll look at this passage, but in the end of Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, you have this sort of thesis statement of the whole of the gospel of Mark. In verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Before we apply Jesus' teaching more broadly, I think that we do need to sit down and hear the specific teaching of Jesus, an honest assessment of wealth. Wealth is not an asset to salvation. You can see why I didn't like this one? <laughs> you can see why this doesn't sit well with us today any more than it sat well. We are amazed, astonished, and maybe a little concerned for Jesus' sanity here. Wealth is not an asset to our salvation. Jesus could not have been any more clear. It is only an asset to faith as something to be leveraged for the good of others and the glory of God. It's the only value, it's the only valuable currency use for wealth is for the good of others and the glory of God. It's its only use. 
We must not fool ourselves and think that wealth will be an aid to our souls. No, Jesus is honest and clear. Our wealth in and of itself is not even neutral. It's not not an asset and therefore just a thing. In and of itself, it's a liability. An impediment in and of itself. And this is why his second statement, we cling to. Because it's a statement of grace that we cling to by faith. Being a child is no hindrance. Being a rich man is no asset. The only way of salvation is by grace. It's the Lord who takes us up into his arms. It's the Lord who forgives our sin. What if the man would have said, Jesus, you left off one? It was notable You didn't mention covet. I nail all the others, but that one's a struggle for me. What if he would have cried out to Jesus for the grace that Jesus had proclaimed, the way of his kingdom? Friends, we would have another brother. We've covered a lengthy passage this morning. We've noted many profound implications. We've seen a simple humanity in Jesus' interactions. We've noted a love of Christ to call both the least and the greatest to himself. Listen, it's one of the errors that we can sort of overcorrect to say that, that, that God is the God of the least. That's not what this two episodes say. Jesus loved them both. Do you see it? We've seen the love of Jesus, bold to confront sin, bold to confront idolatry. We've noted the danger of our own affluence and the miracle of grace. But at the heart of today's passage is this. It's called everyone here to lay down every self-sufficient hope. To turn away from the world's estimation of ourselves and the world's estimation and our own estimation of others to approach Jesus as helpless and dependent like a child and to trust in the miracle of grace by Christ alone, by his grace and gospel alone, his cross and resurrection alone. We enter into his kingdom by faith alone. Lay down your hope in yourself. Lay down your anxiety. I know this is you. Lay down your anxiety that you're not enough. Neither are the helpless children. And that's the point. Lay down your self-righteousness, that there's something you can contribute to your salvation. There's something you can get right in order to be ready to gather. Rest. Trust in the Lord alone and for the redeemed this morning. Allow this word to examine your soul. That we would look at the world rightly. That we would see humans as the creatures that they actually are. That we would prioritize rightly. That we would receive rightly. That we would allow our sense of self-importance and busyness to recede and not to hinder the way of walking behind the grace of God through faith. Heavenly Father, in in these moments, we have heard you say to us things that are crushing to our soul. You literally said it's impossible that anyone here would be saved. 
I pray that we would sit in that for a moment and allow that to work in us the miracle of grace. That forgiveness is fully, functionally real. It is our dependent need that you would forgive, that you would transform, that you would call, and that you would keep us. So we ask for your miracle today. Again, Lord, show us your grace. Spirit, work in us faith. And by your word and spirit, may we be changed to enjoy, take hold of, rest in, revel in the way of your kingdom. You're good. You are good. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our good teacher this morning. Amen.